Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. I was like, the person I want to talk to <laughs> when all this gnarly stuff has been going down is Sydney. So oh, you're too sweet. Thank you. I it was when you messaged me, Katie, I was like, oh, I'm flattered. I am not important enough to be on a podcast. What are you <laughs> well, Sydney, I I don't know how much of flattery it is because you are important <laughs> enough to be on our podcast. Right. <laughs> Well, see, okay, I'm weird and I don't listen to podcasts, and I just assume that it's, like, all important people, and you guys are important people, at least to me. I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, they're important. Oh, yeah, no, that is all true. Everyone we've had on, it's just fun to see, like, our network and to be able to celebrate all these people who yeah. are doing amazing things in all these different quadrants of the world, and we just know them. Yeah. It's low-key, just a way for us to hang out with people. Yes. COVID times, like, you know. Sydney, could you start out by just giving our listeners just a tiny introduction to you? Because we know how we know you, but um, can you tell us, like, who you are in the city? Yes. Um, My name is Sydney Hayes. I am a social worker. Um, I graduated from the University of Cincinnati in May of 2019 with my Master's of Social Work. And I currently work at a psychiatric hospital as the partial hospitalization program social worker. Um, And I know these lovely ladies through, um, I helped with some admin stuff at a church um, that kind of all brought us together and that's how we connected. And Sydney, if I'm not mistaken, I actually think that you are the person who named our house and thus our podcast. Is this correct, Anne Rothus? <laughs> I have. You have said this before, and I honestly cannot remember. But Sydney is definitely um, like queen bee of the feminist land. So <laughs> I can I mean, definitely I see like it happening. Things, I so like I'll like say something, and people will be like, "Well, what'd you just say?" And I'll be like, "I don't know. I wasn't listening. I wasn't talking to me." <laughs> <laughs> so, like, the things that come out of my mouth, like, I can't be sure. It was probably me saying a word wrong. That's kind of how I feel like it went, but I don't know. Yeah, so the story that I've been telling around town is that when Anne was telling you, and there were some other ladies, um, that we were renting a house and moving in together, and it sounds like the our birds were a part of this story, but you said... Yeah, you should name it the rectory, and then with you two in it, I'm gonna call it the erectory. <laughs> <laughs> Wildly possible. So in my mind, that is how this came to be. And when Anne told it to me, I was like, "Yes," because we knew we needed we needed yeah. a name. I do remember talking about naming the house. I do remember this. Okay, so. good. I will take that as 100% confirmation. Absolutely. That happened. I said it. You're welcome. 
Well, yep. Sydney, I kind of lied. You and I actually did talk about what um, ideas about what was uh, um, going to come up today. You told me that you were finishing training in developmental and relational trauma therapy, and yeah. I about fell over. <laughs> because I think after this season, all of us feel like we need some relational trauma therapy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, I actually just finished. Um, so there are two levels of the training, and I just finished level two on Sunday. So what does that mean? So developmental and relational trauma therapy is um, really looking at our early relationships and our family of origin um, and the way that has impacted our our relational selves and how we're how we are relational with others and with ourselves. So um, we talk about the the five core issues, which was developed by Pia Melody, um, who was at the Meadows and developed post-induction therapy. Um, and the idea is that every child is born valuable, vulnerable, imperfect, dependent, and open and spontaneous. And through these different woundings, um, we develop issues with self-esteem, boundaries, our reality, um, our dependence and interdependence, and our openness and spontaneity. So our moderation would be that last one. We get our story straight by understanding our family of origin, um, and it gets into inner child work and reparenting and all of that new agey, hippy-dippy sounding stuff that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like this is one of the first models that I really feel like, okay, I see this moving people forward, and I see this, you know, even for those individuals who have done so much therapy, um, there's just something different about this because it is an experiential process, um, and how it just makes sense of so much of how we relate and um, how we see ourselves, and so it's been really encouraging for me to see, like, no, there is a way out, and this is really actually possible, and I'm finally feeling confident that I know at least a little bit of how to help people get there. It's amazing. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> You're so sweet. <laughs> um, I kind of want to flip. We're kind of talking about, like, the therapy side, but I kind of want to flip and talk about why are you where you are? What motivated you or drove you or uh, what inspired you to start the path on social work and then end up here? It's a great question. Um, so I, the plan for me was always ministry. Um, I was on staff at a church for five years, um, and it was very interesting being 20, 20 years old and getting my dream job. And in case anybody is wondering, if you get your dream job when you're 20 years old, it's not going to go well for you. I'm just <laughs> going to go ahead and tell you that. Because this was a, a dream that 13-year-old Sydney had, and God mm. bless her, 13-year-old Sydney did her best, but she was a disaster of a person. So <laughs> she did her best, and we're proud that she got us here. But Yeah. Um, so that was the dream, and then when I was 20, I got that dream, and it was amazing at first, and then it 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 turned out that I wasn't 13-year-old Sydney, and by the time I was, you know, 10 years past 13-year-old Sydney, 20, 23, 24-year-old Sydney, I came to realize that um, 
the dream isn't the dream anymore. It was a, a, a slow, 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 painful death of a dream. Um, and it was interesting because a year before that, I was about to graduate from undergrad, and I was looking at grad programs, and I looked into psych doctorate programs, which are incredibly competitive, um, and they're like seven years of school, and I don't like being in school, and I was like, that's not a good match for me. And then one day I was in my capstone class, and it just clicked. Social work, that's what I'm going to do. And that was just, that's literally how I decided to get my MSW. Because it's four semesters. A master's of counseling is like six semesters, or seven, I don't know. And then a PhD is a bajillion years. And so <laughs> I was like, this is the path oh, I know. of existence. Yes, you know. And so I have always had a passion for mental health, um, always had a passion for showing up and caring for people. And once that dream was kind of dying, I realized that this is a way that I can do all of the things that I want to do, and I can love anybody I want to love the way that I want to, and nobody gets to tell me that it's wrong. Nobody, nobody gets to tell me that, you know, my, my views on my my friends' relationships are wrong, or the people that they love, or politics. Nobody, my, my job doesn't depend on my, my intricate religious beliefs anymore. Mm. Um, that's kind of what, what led me to social work. I've always been passionate about mental health. I've had my own mental health things that I've, I've dealt with, and, um, Mostly I just know what it's like to feel really alone, and I don't ever want people to feel that way. Um, You're really freaking good at it, Sydney. <laughs> Thank you. You fiercely care for and advocate for people, especially vulnerable, isolated people, and you have done that for a long, 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 long time. And now you have an office, and now you have interns. <laughs> I know, it's bizarre. I don't, like... They're not my interns, but I also have four interns, and it's so strange. <laughs> like, I'm a, I'm a baby social worker. I'm a year and a half post-grad. Like, I don't know who did this, but it's it's awesome. I I love it, and I'm really thankful for where I'm at right now. Imposter syndrome is real. It I'm, is. Yeah. I'm on the board of my church, and I keep thinking they're going to figure out that I'm a teenager, and I'm almost 40. Would you say that you're seeing certain patterns of the kind of childhood wounding that then eventually comes in front of you and your fellow therapists? Like, is there something that keeps coming up over and over again? Yeah, there is. So one of the one of the first things we do when we do the the debriefing, the getting your story straight, is identifying um, what your family role was. So people can either be the scapegoat, which is where everything gets taken out on them. Um, they can be the hero child where the esteem of the family rests on them. Um, they make the family look good. And then there's also the lost child. And the lost child, my favorite way I've heard this described is the hero that never got noticed. Oh. And so they're the ones that are just kind of there. Um, they don't have great connection to any specific parent um, necessarily. It can be different. Um, but 
they're kind of on their own trying to figure everything out on their own. And more and more and more of what I see are the lost children. The, the profound loneliness and trying to figure it out on your own. I would say that I see a lot of that. I'm kind of curious. I don't know if, if Anne and Emily want to answer this question. But kind of thinking about those three... Um, the three children that Sydney was talking about, um, the kind of the role in the family. I'm curious if you guys had a thought about what role you played in your family growing up. And I guess Sydney too, I would want to ask you that too. I personally identify as the lost child. Um, I have been told many times I'm the one no one has to worry about. Mm. Um, and I've always been the caretaking kind, but never like the shining superhero that, you know, is this big achiever. Um, so that would be mine. What about you guys? Sydney, I also just want to say I know you're my people because I have to take notes when you talk. So like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That's what I'm sitting over here doing. Um, yeah, it's I all right. think I made a lot of money to know this stuff, so I'm glad that other people enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm currently in my childhood home oh. with my parents and siblings, um, so some of these things are playing out <clears throat> in very interesting ways. I think I would also say the lost child, I really liked when you said, like, the one that no one has to worry about, because mm -hmm. I definitely wasn't, like, fancy or shiny enough to, like, be the achiever. I would say that would be the second oldest sibling, mm -hmm. um, was more that. Um and then, yeah, yeah, I don't, it's maybe a little bit, I don't know if you can be both, but I think I would. Yeah, you can, and you can be different with each parent, you can be different at different ages. Well, yeah, and I, that'll take more exploration on my behalf, I'm sure, too. But yeah, when just from, just from what you're saying, I would say, lost child. Emily? Awesome. Um, I would say... Hero child, I definitely was like the straight A student, and when you said hard time having fun, I know my mom like always used to tell me that like I would never and you never smiled when you were a baby. Like we would try <laughs> to make you laugh, and you just sat there. Like I've always been pretty like serious. Like no guys, let's get to work. Like, <laughs> let's get we this group project done. Big world. Yeah, but then also, like, I did identify with the lost child when you said the part about, like, the one that no one has to worry about, because I feel like because I was so independent, people were just kind of like, oh, she's fine, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so probably yeah. between those two. Yeah, it definitely sounds like they're both there. Yeah. Oh, I was hardcore hero child growing up. I was the oldest with two younger brothers, and constantly monitoring them and policing them mm -hmm. and um, bringing home the grades and, you know, dressing, you know, the way my mother wanted me to and uh, talking with adults about adult conversations. And, yeah. Um, and I kind of, it's interesting, that dependence thing I really see. And for me... Um, I don't know that I ever flipped into either lost child or scapegoat, but certainly my adulthood was very became very different from my childhood because I moved back into my childhood home because of a 
prolonged illness. Mm. And my younger brothers went to graduate school, got advanced degrees. My youngest brother got married and had children. Um, mm. And all of that, ha you know, moved out of the house. That was happening while I was regressing significantly in my physical abilities, my life milestones. I was not meeting life milestones. Mm. Um, and so there were ways in which I um, have asserted that my birth order flipped. Um, yeah. Both my brothers surpassed me then, and they became the, um, what am I trying to say, bushwhackers? What do I want to say? Trailblazers. Trailblazers. <laughs> <laughs> they became the trailblazers. And, you know, instead of, I don't think they came to me for advice when I, you know, when they were small boys. They were like, leave us alone. You don't need to parent us. But, right. Um, Definitely as an adult, because, you know, I have a doctor and a lawyer for a brother, merciful heavens. Like, I go to them yeah. and say, what's this mole? You know, how do I, what do yeah. I do this? And so in a lot of ways, that relationship, even though I'm out of the house and doing, you know, a degree in things, have really, really flipped. So. And that can be really unnerving when our roles change. Um, and it, it can be really humbling and it can be really hard. And it, it can also be a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. to kind of to kind of learn that, but yeah, it's it's really hard when our roles change for sure. I mean, that's like experiencing a death, and it's a death that you need to grieve. I love that you said that because even the the best of things need to be grieved when you lose them. So when I left my last job and came here, I was profoundly sad to leave those kids that I worked with. Mm. Um, even though this was a much better environment for me and it was exactly what I wanted, I was still I was still leaving something and losing something and there's still a lot to grieve there. No matter and even when people get married, there's a lot to grieve there. It's a beautiful, yeah. wonderful thing and it's the end of something as well. It's yeah, the taboo of, of divorce and um, I think that makes a lot of people afraid to say that they're struggling and reach out for help. And this is supposed to be this beautiful, ordained gift that God has given you, and sometimes you hate it. Yep. Sometimes you hate this person and you do not want to be with them. And more people need to talk about that because the more you, you get these one-off conversations with people who, who are willing to to be real with you, it's like, hey, there were three years of my marriage that were absolute hell, and I didn't think we were going to make it. Mm. And those aren't, aren't the things that people talk about enough, because we, in the, in the church, we often gloss over how incredibly difficult it is to be a person in relationship with other people. Mm. And we often use little trite sayings and power dynamics and different things to kind of skirt past that. I kind of want to leave some space for Emily because I feel like she's rocking and rolling some with ideas in that head. I, I was just thinking about how Sydney had mentioned how she enjoyed her current job because there's no constraints on who you're allowed to love and how you're allowed to love them. And because I think a lot of churches are real hypocritical about how they spread their love around. And it's real popular right now for churches to put on their website and their Facebook pages that we love everyone, everyone is welcome, you know. And then 
certain minority groups of people get through the door, and they are, in fact, not fully welcome. And we'll find that, no, you can't be... No, you can't be on the worship team, you can't lead children's ministry, you can't be an elder, whatever it is. You don't get to use the gifts God gave you to love people here. Yeah, yeah. And and or we don't accept you wholly as a person. Like, we don't affirm your identity. Like, we don't, you know, perform marriages for homosexual couples or, you know, we don't believe that you can be transgender or whatever it is or even just feeling excluded because I know I come from a denomination that is like literally like 90% white and like that's what I grew up in like there was I remember there was like one regular black woman who attended our congregation and that was and ours, ours was a pretty, it was a pretty big church and I'm pretty sure the only reason she attended was because she had been a care, like a live-in nurse to one of the congregants. Oh, wow. Um, like a long-term, like, live-in nurse. So, like, do it that what you will. But, like... But, yeah, seeing those people that... I, I keep thinking of them as the adults in my life, and, again, almost 40 over here. But people <laughs> that were the adults when I was a child, when I was a teenager... And that I still relate to in many ways as adults in my life. And seeing the things that they've said and written and going, this does not compute with what you genuinely gave me as a gift of mm-hmm. reading yeah. the scripture and looking at other people and hospitality and gentleness and thoughtfulness and questioning the spirit. How are these the same person but yeah. I, for about 800 reasons, before my grief gets too far, I always have to roll that back on myself and say, well, somebody could ask this about you. Mm. And they certainly could have asked that about you two years ago or four years ago or 14 years ago. Mm-hmm. And someone who's more mature in the spirit than you can look, if they could, well not just like look at it at a cross-section of my brain, but hear what comes out of my mouth now. Someone has got to be asking that about me. And that's kind of the only way to survive some of the grief and the threats to your relationships when something like that happens. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I remember after the morning after the 2016 election when we knew... And I went to a staff meeting, and there were a couple of us that were really distraught. And someone saying, I don't know why you guys are so upset. I don't understand why you're living in fear. Jesus is still on the throne. And I I just had to hold in. this. I had a snap back, and I was like, mm, do not clap back at this man right now. Don't do it, Sydney." Because he believes it, and because it's what's comforting to him, and it's true. It's the truest of things to him. And and my thought was, yeah, like, Jesus was on the throne during the Holocaust. What did that do yep. for his chosen people? Like, yeah. Jesus has been on the throne during every injustice in history, and unjust people in power will still do terrible things to vulnerable people. Yeah. And it's our job to do something about it, so I cannot sit here and say, well, Jesus is on the throne. 
yeah. as an erasure of the other thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus being on the throne ought to be a call to be the hands and feet here on earth, not mm -hmm. a way to silence people who mm -hmm. are afraid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. people who say that would, you know, would say that that's what they believe and it just really doesn't sound that way in those moments. No. Mm -hmm. No, it's almost always like an excuse to just be passive mm -hmm. in their actions. Yeah. yeah. And because they genuinely don't understand. It's not bad for them, right? Like they're not Right. The ones. Yeah. Right. He didn't understand what it was to sit there and have a man named president who has bragged about sexually assaulting women. Mm -hmm. Like, he, he doesn't know what that feels like. Yeah. In the way that we're taught in church of, of cover-up because you don't want to cause them to stumble and then, yeah, and just thinking about that and how, how we were told these things and how bizarre it is that that we were ever told these things, and um, and that became a huge thing for me whenever I would take, because I, I worked in student ministry, whenever I would take our kids somewhere, I would say, like, we, we will respect their rules because we respect them and their authority, and this is why we dress the way we dress. We dress the way we dress because we want to honor ourselves and honor God, and I don't get to tell you what that looks like, and I want you to think about what it looks like to really respect and honor your own body, not mm -hmm. to be afraid of the guys around you. Because it, it led it led to them being afraid. Like, we were at a camp, and one of my girls asked one of the camp staff, like, how strict is the, like, dress code thing? And this staff member said, we take this very seriously because some of our male staff struggle with lust. <gasps> Holy shit. And Anne knows me the best, so Anne can imagine how uh, how that went for this this situation. Just light it up. Was this they, pre or post Krav Maga lessons, Sydney? Oh gosh, mm. this was pre. This was and so I, I went to the camp director and I was like, Hey, this is what my kids were told. They're afraid to swim now. And so if this is the case, um and you have these these adult men who can't control themselves around 12 years then they can either go home or go to jail. And those are the options that we have for them. Wow. So that's what we're going to have to do with that. All done with that nonsense. Exactly. And so I, like, this is going to be audio, so no one knows how tall. I am 4 feet and 11 inches tall. And uh, I say that a lot of times... God didn't make me the average size because I think I would have accidentally taken over the world or something by now. <laughs> it's a little spicy. So, and especially like when I felt like someone was threatening or doing something harmful to like my kids, Mama Bear would come out and it was, it made me so angry because they should get to feel safe. Yep. They should never have to feel unsafe because of their bodies. No. Did anything happen as a result of your statement, Sydney? Um, he said that they would talk to them. I don't know. Oh, it's a he in charge, of course. Well, yeah, it was this uh, very, like, 
Baptist camp, and uh, all of the like senior staff carried guns on their hips. Oh no! Three guys. Um. Yeah, and and I I did say the f word in front of one of them. <laughs> uh, and I I think that. He almost came unglued, but he wasn't allowed because one of my kids lied about her dad dying, so he had to be nice to me still. It was, yeah. Man. This also makes me think of why we need, like, diversity in, like, leadership positions. So, yeah. like, because there was a man in charge of these other men, there wasn't, like, a woman in the power hierarchy to be like, ho, 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 let me share my perspective in maybe a way that I work with you guys and I have this relationship with you and I can kind of come instead of someone like outside the system saying, what the heck? Um, and the same thing in like a church body or on a church board, if everyone is old white men and all of the particular quirks and perspectives held by old white men, you will only have a singular perspective of what is going on in the world and you are shepherding a congregation that is full of different perspectives and how, like it's physically not possible for you like you I, I don't expect myself to be able to have all the perspectives in the world but mm -hmm. I have to be in communication and honor and friendship with people who think and see the world differently than I do so that I can learn it's like a posture of humility but as we're seeing here it's a posture that can lead to people being protected and lead to vulnerable people being not only represented, but <clears throat> taken care of. So important. Yeah, and it was, yeah, the next summer we made like our own, we did our own camp. And so it was a couple of churches and it was really four men that were in charge. And there were two of us women that were associated with these. I'm, I'm being, I'm being delicate because right. these aren't, stories we've ever shared publicly, but um, mm. they sent out an email that was like, oh, girls have to wear one-piece bathing suits, and my girls were like, I don't wear one-piece bathing suits, I want to wear a tankini, because those aren't, like, as tight, and I was like, again, an example of why men should not make this rule, because <laughs> pieces are, like, skin tight. Yep. Yeah. Like, you, and they, they don't flex the same them. way. And also, right. like, I don't know about y'all, but, like, when I was camper age, tankinis were, like, all the rage. They were, like, the new thing that was super cool. So, like, there weren't that many one-pieces in the store. This is an example of why you need women. Like, the, like why you need someone that, th that thinks differently. Like, I was like, no, I, like, I told all of my girls, I was like, no, you can wear tankinis, that's fine. They were like, what if we get in trouble? I was like, well, send them to me. It's, mm -hmm. I'm not worried about it. Also, can boys wear T-shirts, please, while they swim in their swim trunks? Yeah. They're so concerned about covering everything. With their nipples out. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> no armpits. <laughs> Unbelievable. But no, Sydney, what you just said of those girls saying, but what, what if we'll get in trouble? What if we'll do that? And you just absorbing that for them and saying, send them to me. No problem. You are 12. You don't have to deal with this nonsense I will deal with it for you. Just you're a little child. Yeah. You're fantastic, and you've always been fantastic. So I just appreciate so much. Thank you. You're welcome. 
let's say um, you were talking to someone and they weren't quite ready to actually commit to therapy, but is there anything that you would recommend for someone to read to help them have better self-knowledge to maybe investigate trauma in their own life or as she turns, she spins to the bookcase, <laughs> she's pulling for something. Yes. Oh, I forgot this isn't. Um, so this is, it's called Gifts from a Challenging Childhood by Jan Bergstrom. This is a great way to get started to understand kind of where these, where these things come from. Um, so I would definitely recommend her book. Um, there's also another book I love by Pete Walker. It's mm -hmm. called Complex Trauma from Surviving to Thriving. Um, very similar... Um, similar ideas, but they look at it a little differently. Um, yeah. So I would say that. And um, as far as, you know, like considering therapy, um, interviewing a therapist, because like research shows that the most important thing for therapy to be effective is the relationship between the client and therapist. So when you see a therapist for the first time, you're interviewing them. You're not committing to anything. You're trying to find the best fit. Um, and so I would encourage people to try that, to um, talk to people, figure out what their specialty is, which is important, but the most important thing is feeling a connection. And I would say that that trying, you know, if you're not ready for therapy, trying to get honest with, with your people, finding even, um, even one person that you can be really vulnerable with and share um, what's going on. Yeah, I had two therapists that I really did not connect with, and it was not a great experience, and then I found one that it, it worked. Oh my goodness, so much, Sydney. This is a gold mine. <laughs> you guys are so great. Can we all live in the same place and hang out? I wish. Yes. We've got a spare room. It's kind of small, but... <laughs> Don't me with a good time, Katie. Ha, 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 ha.